All right, we're going to be in Joshua 24. As for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. Joshua 24. So that's the sixth book of the Bible, right after the first five books of Moses. Joshua 24. Now we're going to get the end of the story, but there's a few more sermons to come in Joshua. Um, But this one is a very impactful section because it is Joshua giving a last speech as he's getting ready to die. The Bible has uh, several of these that we can look at. They're very poignant because when someone's getting ready to leave this planet, um, the most important things that they want to share are before us. And so we watch the Apostle Paul do this with Timothy. He gives him a charge. Second uh, Timothy is the last book that Paul ever wrote. He will give him a charge about the most important things to focus on. Joshua, whose uh, Hebrew name is Joshua and his Greek name is Jesus, is a type of Jesus. What do I mean by that? I mean that when you study the book of Joshua, you can see typology. You can see a picture of Jesus, the Jesus that was to come in the life of the Old Testament Joshua. And the Old Testament Joshua, if you were with us when we did a previous message in Joshua, was both a worshiper and a warrior. And uh, I think I would be defined as a man's man. Uh, for those of you who, you know, maybe you're new to church and you're kind of wondering, what, what's this whole thing about like worshiping God? Sometimes I think guys feel that worship and the Christian life is a bit feminine. Anybody out there? Sometimes you might feel that way. Nobody wants to raise their hand. <laughs> because sometimes, it, you know, it could be the idea of the worship music or uh, I'm not saying that all of it comes across that way, but just sometimes I think men wonder, how do I do this church thing? How do I navigate this as a man? I have inclinations as, as a man. I want to be a warrior. Is, is being a warrior mutually exclusive from being a worshiper? No, they're both actually, uh, they can go together. And when I say a warrior, I'm not talking about being out on the battlefield. Some of you have experienced that, but I'm talking about fighting for what we believe in, not being afraid to compete at some things. Uh, maybe you've noticed this, guys love competition. We love, you don't love it, Bill? <laughs> and we also, this is why, ladies, this is a little insight into the, the mind of a man, and it's not that deep. Okay, but <laughs> is this is why many men are into sports and even into underdog stories because we love to see men and women fight and compete and win. That's why uh, for those guys that are out here who have a team or teams, and this is true for females as well, uh, we have a chief fan right up here. We won't hold that against him. Just pray for Paul. But anyway, but we, when we see somebody fight and scrap and win, especially if they're an underdog, we feel like we're part of that. And that, that's just a little bit into the mind of men. Not all men love sports, but you, you get the idea. Joshua is a warrior and a worshiper, and it's okay to be both. In fact, if Joshua, and he is, is a type of Jesus, you can see in the life of Jesus, if you've read through the Gospels, that he was both a worshiper and a warrior. He always did those things that pleased his father. He was extremely compassionate with people. Uh, He was in the synagogue reading the scriptures. We watch him pray. He often went off to lonely places to pray. But he was also a warrior. He goes into the temple and he turns over the tables, right? He calls out the religious hypocrisy of the Pharisees. He was the perfect combination of what one writer called velvet and steel, And this writer was talking about Abraham Lincoln, a combination of velvet and steel as a leader. And it's okay to have both sides as a man, to to be soft and to be strong, and to know when you need to employ uh, either one of those. And that's the tricky part, right? And that's what we struggle with in our fallenness, is that we sometimes don't know how to engage all of that. I'm hoping that in this message today, I can give you some practicals of things that I've learned. 
Uh, the longer I live, the more I realize I don't know. So I'm going to approach this with some measure of re, uh, sharing with you that there are many things as I go on in life I don't know. Uh, for those of you who don't know me, my name is Michael. Uh, I have celebrated 30 years of marriage with my wife recently, and uh, we have three boys. And uh, each of those boys are now into their adult years or all over 20 years old. <clears throat> so there's been a journey that's behind us and a journey that's also in front of us. And so I think it's important that whenever we uh, tackle a passage or a day like this, I'm going to try to give you as much practical stuff as I can about as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. Let's pray before we go any further. Father, thank you for each precious person that's come into this building on this day. I do pray that you would keep all of us healthy. I pray that we would be healthy spiritually as well. I pray that the hurts and wounds that can come into a building like this on a day like this, when uh, thinking of fathers, some of us have excellent, wonderful examples. Some are sitting with their dads. And then others of us have pain and confusion and uh, hurts that we carry even to this day. But you are the father of the fatherless and you're the defender of widows and orphans. And thank you, Lord, that we have a picture of what a father should be in the Lord Jesus Christ. And I pray you'll help us to become more like him and to bring you glory. In Jesus' name and all God's people said, amen. amen. Let's take a look at, uh, and if you'd stand, if you're physically able to stand, we're just going to read a few verses. We'll, we'll pick up the story at the end of Joshua 23 in verse 14. Joshua 23, 14. Now behold, today Joshua is speaking to the people, I am going the way of all the earth. That means I'm going to die. And you know, Joshua 23, 14, in all your hearts and in all your souls, that not one word of all the good words which the Lord your God spoke concerning you has failed. All have been fulfilled for you. Not one of them has failed. It shall come about that just as all the good words which the Lord your God spoke to you have come upon you, so the Lord will bring upon you all the threats until he has destroyed you from uh, off this good land which the Lord your God has given you. This is a warning if you follow, there'll be blessings. If you don't, there will be cursings. When you transgress the covenant of the Lord your God, which he commanded you, and go and serve other gods and bow down to them, this is something that would happen in the nation, then the anger of the Lord will burn against you, and you will perish quickly from off the good land which he has given you. And then all the way down to 24, 15. If it is disagreeable in your sight to serve the Lord, choose for yourselves today whom you will serve, whether the gods which your father served, which were beyond the river, or the gods of the Amorites in whose land you are living. But as for me, says Joshua, and my house, we will serve the Lord. Amen? You may be seated. Thank you, Father, for your living word. May it come alive to us in fresh ways in Jesus' name. Amen. Our Thursday morning men's study is back meeting in person. A few of the guys are Zooming in, and we've all kind of, uh, a lot of you have gotten used to the Zoom kind of platform. And last Thursday, we continued in the Gospel of John, and we are looking at something that the Bible lays out as the upper room discourse. This is John chapters 13 through 17. It's a period of just a few hours. It's the last literally 24 hours of Jesus' life, so it's a parallel to what Joshua has to say because it's the last words that Jesus is sharing with his apostles before he dies. So very important stuff. If you've ever studied uh, the Upper Room Discourse, in John 13, he washes their feet. And he says, I've given you an example. I came to serve. I want you to serve one another. He uh, identifies the fact that one of them is going to betray him. Hearts are heavy in the room. And then Jesus begins to talk about heaven. He says, let not your hearts be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house, there are many dwelling places or mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you. I go and prepare a place for you. Now, some of the language in there is a bit hard to understand for the apostles. Their hearts are heavy. And they're, they're like, Lord, where are you going? And how can we know the way? And Jesus gives that famous verse in John 14, 6, I am the way, the truth, and the life. 
No one's coming to the Father or to my Father's house except through me. And one of the apostles says, Lord, show us the Father and that'll be enough for us. And Jesus says, have I been so long with you, Philip, that you don't know me? If you've seen me, you've seen the Father, John 14, 9. How can you say, show us the Father? I want to park there for a second to let you know that when you watch the life of Jesus, when you see his compassion, when you see his boldness, when you see the truth embodied in the life of Jesus, you are watching the Father in one sense. Now, Jesus is the Son, but he says, if you've seen me, you've seen the way that I live, I embody the reality of the triune God. If you've seen me in action, you've seen, let me put it this way, the heart of the Father. Now, sometimes we, we wonder about God the Father. We're not sure if he's a, some wrathful God who's just waiting to beat us over the head when we get out of line. But it is the Father that so loved the world that he gave his only Son. It's the Father that sent his Son on a rescue mission because he so loved the world that he made and the world that had gone astray. So never forget that it's the Father's love that is manifested in the Son. And when Jesus is dying on the cross, it's the Father's love on display. Yes, Jesus is taking the wrath of God the Father, if you will, because God is holy, but it is also God the Father's love on display. And so when Jesus is moving around in the Gospels and speaking to people and interacting and surprising us in so many ways, in the things that he says and the things that he does and the way that he doesn't go with just the flow of culture. That's our God. In fact, the visible God is manifest in the Son. The invisible God, I should say, is manifest in the visible Son. See, God is spirit, but Jesus manifested the fullness of the deity, according to Colossians chapter 2, in bodily form. So you could say you were seeing God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit in Jesus. In fact, he was anointed with the Holy Spirit. And one of the things that he says in that upper room discourse is, I'm not going to leave you alone. I won't leave you as orphans. I will come to you. And he promises that a helper is coming, the third person of the Holy Trinity, the Holy Spirit's going to come and he'll be your comforter. Literally, if you're familiar with the Greek word, it's parakletos. He'll be one who comes alongside to help you. I am leaving, but I'm sending another just like me to help you. Now that's Jesus's last speech. This is Joshua's last speech. Now Jesus had other things to say, but I'm talking about before he physically died. We have a resurrection and all of that. And so Joshua is a type of Jesus, and he gives a charge to the people of Israel. And they have gathered, notice, in a place called Shechem. This is 24-1 of Joshua. Joshua gathered all the tribes of Israel to Shechem. Shechem literally means shoulder. And called for the elders. Now remember, at the end of chapter 23, we see that he's getting ready to die. So this is a, extremely important. He called for the elders of Israel, the leaders, and for their heads and their judges and their officers. So here's all the leaders of the nation. And they presented themselves before God. Now Joshua gathers the people to give this final charge in this final chapter of the book by his name. And they gather all the tribes, notice all 12 tribes, to Shechem, which means shoulder. I was thinking uh, of being a parent and being, in my case, a dad and a husband there is a lot to shoulder, and I think this is a significant thought, that we shoulder the responsibility of the generations behind us. And we can all look back and say, you know, there's things that I wish I would have done different. And some of you are sitting here, and you came to the Lord later in life. And so you didn't have a chance to influence your kids, if you have children, in Christ, because you became a convert to Christianity later in your life. And that's certainly something that is reality, and there's not much you can do about it now. And I don't think it does you any good to beat yourself up over what shoulda, coulda, woulda been. So I think the best you can do is, is be the man that God's called you to be now. And maybe you're going to have some spiritual kids that you get to disciple, or maybe you know, some of you have had an opportunity with your children uh, later in life. 
Um, but it is, it is a responsibility that I think dads feel a heaviness about. And sometimes it feels like a weight we cannot carry. Life does seem heavy at times, right? And one of the keys of the Christian life is to cast all your cares to the Lord because he cares for you. He cares about your kids. He loves your children. He cares about you. He cares about your spiritual health, your mental and emotional health. And so it's not healthy for you to walk around with this thousand ton weight on you constantly. And if you are an expert at beating yourself up, can I give you a, uh, maybe uh, some spiritual medicine today? Stop it. <laughs> Look, we all have our regrets. We all feel the weight of things that we, we could have done differently. But that's yesterday and you can't change yesterday. You can't. All you can do is live for today. You can't control tomorrow. And, and a lot of us in this room are control freaks, right? We gotta have the wheel. We, we can sing Jesus take the wheel, but it's Michael take the wheel, right? Nobody? Anyway, <laughs> I, I feel you. I feel the amen in your soul. And so he calls them together. You can call this a big family meeting. And some of you, are, you, are used to family meetings, right? <laughs> you know what those are all about, right? It's a charge. He gathered them, he called them, and notice they presented themselves before God. I want to show you two places in the New Testament. Just uh, hold your place in Joshua and go over to 1 Timothy. 1 Timothy. And if you don't want to turn there, you can just listen to it. It's okay. 1 Timothy 6. I'm going to show you a couple of charges that come from Timothy, um, um, Paul to Timothy. So here's a mentor to his disciple, if you will, to his spiritual son. 1 Timothy 6, 13, he says, I charge you. So the Bible has these ideas of charging. Uh, recently, we did uh, an ordination for Matthew, Pastor Matthew, and we gave him a charge. And I know that was a very special moment, Pastor Matthew, where there was a charge from uh, another leader to an up-and-coming leader. And I know you didn't take that charge lightly. And uh, sometimes you have to go back and reflect on those moments. I, I look back, I was ordained into the ministry in 1995, and I remember just about everything that was said from the leaders in my life at that ordination service, and that was 25 years ago. But I can almost remember that ordination service like it was yesterday. It was a very poignant moment for me. I had other godly men who had, who had shaped and discipled me who were speaking into my life and giving me a formal charge as I was ordained into the ministry. I charge you in the presence of God, 1 Timothy 6, 13, who gives life to all things and of Christ Jesus, who testified the good confession before Pontius Pilate, that you keep the commandment without stain or reproach until the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ which he will bring about at the proper time, he who is the blessed and only sovereign, the King of kings and Lord of lords. Flip over to the next book, 2 Timothy 4, just a few pages to your right. This is what uh, Paul wrote last in his life. And he's getting ready to die. And he gives another charge to Timothy, passing the baton. I solemnly charge you, 2 Timothy 4, 1, in the presence of God. So we are before him as if we were before him. And we live our lives before the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead and by his appearing and his kingdom, preach the word. Here's the charge. Be ready in season and out of season. Reprove, rebuke, exhort with great patience and instruction. For the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine, but wanting to have their ears tickled, they will accumulate for themselves teachers in accordance to their own desires. And will turn away their ears from the truth and will turn aside to myths. But you, my spiritual son, be sober in all things. Endure hardship, it will come. Do the work of an evangelist. Fulfill your ministry. Now, I could take you to many more, but let's go back to Joshua. And I want to tell you that a formal charge is part of the biblical record. It's something that I think we need to do as dads to sons and daughters as spiritual fathers to those that we are shaping, as spiritual moms, uh, as grandmas and grandpas and great-grandmas and great-grandpas. We cannot be afraid to speak 
charges into their lives. Now, we want to do it with grace, and we, we certainly want to do it keeping in mind our own frailties and walking in humility. But nonetheless, it is a needful thing to speak direction and to tell the next generation that, hey, there's something that God wants you to do. This place, Shechem, in Joshua 24, one is where uh, the Lord appeared to Abraham or Abram at the time and said to your descendants, this is Genesis 12, 7, I will give this land. And so Abram, the father of the nation of Israel, built an altar there at the Oak of Moray in Shechem. That's Genesis 12, 6 and 7 to the Lord who had appeared to him. There are milestone moments in locations. This significant location of Shechem is a it, there are places where special things happen where we can mark those locations. And sometimes they're just simply marking them in, in your mind or they may be a physical spot that you have in your mind that a significant moment happened. I have a plaque in our home. We've been in our home uh, for 25 years now living in the city of Corona and we have a plaque and some of you have this same thing. You walk into our home and it, the plaque says, as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. I understand what it means to not serve the Lord. I understand what it means to live my life in rebellion to his plan. I've been on the other side of the tracks. And when we bought that home in Corona, I was a Christian and we dedicated that house to the Lord. Now, my kids, as they were growing up, may not have understood everything. And so one of the things that I was told by other men was, tell your sons your story. Tell your story to them. And as guys, we're not the best communicators in the world, but uh, I, we had a couple of moments where I took my kids to the location where I grew up. I told them about my dad. I told them about where I played Little League. I showed them our house where I grew up. And uh, not everybody's able to do that, but we, had, uh, we, we would do boys' nights out. And, and I wanted to convey to them what happened to me. Not that it's about me, but I wanted them to know a little bit of their dad's story. This is who I am. This is what happened. This is how the journey unfolded. And I think there's a real value to that. I'll leave it to you dads to decide when you do that and how you do that. But Joshua is challenging the people, much like Jesus, our Joshua, challenged the church in Revelation 2 and 3. You've left your first love. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. Revelation 3.20. Open the door. Let's, let's have a close relationship again. That he speaks to the church, not to the world. Revelation 3.20 is written to a church. And so this desire for closeness, Elijah, centuries later, in 1 Kings 18, 21, says to the people, he came near and he said, how long will you hesitate or waver between two opinions? If the Lord is God, follow him. If Baal, then follow him. But the people did not answer him a word. Now Joshua is going to lay out a history, and I was just talking about sharing your history with your kids. Um, and that history is what God did in the nation. And here's what's interesting about this particular section. There's really nothing here about Israel's failures. You know, many times when we see uh, a recounting of Israel's uh, past, we, we see how many times they failed God, right? And there's enough failures where we can sit here for the next several hours, right? And sometimes we read the Old Testament and we go, oh no, they're not going to do it again, are they? Right? You read through the book of Judges and you're like, one day they're following the Lord, one day they're not. One day they're following the Lord, one day they're not. Kind of like us. Huh? Yeah, kind of like us. We can be fickle. We can waver between two opinions, right? One day we really look committed to the Lord. The next day we can live like a practical atheist. Let's face it. This is for us, folks. This is for us. And Joshua said to all the people, 24-2, thus says the Lord God, he's speaking now as a prophet, the, the God of Israel from ancient times, your fathers lived beyond the river, that would be the Euphrates, namely Terah, that's Abram's dad, Abraham's dad, the father of Abraham, the father of Nahor, that's Abraham's brother, 
And we find out here now that Abraham, the father of the Jewish nation, came from a family of idolaters. They served other gods. And we don't know exactly what happened with Abraham. There are extra biblical stories, and you could say they fall in the legend category, that say that Abram, from a very early age, did not believe in his family's idolatrous ways. And he, there's even a legendary story, extra biblical story, that he smashed the family's idols. We don't know that for sure. But we do know that there's people who grow up in other religious systems that see through it from a very early age. In fact, kids can see through a lot of stuff. <laughs> yeah, can I get a witness? And they'll say the, the most surprising things, usually in the store, in front of people that you would wish they didn't say it. <laughs> but anyway, they can see through a lot of stuff. I was listening to a pastor last night that said he was in church when he was three years old. And he said typically he, his family would go to a Sunday night service and he would sleep on the pew while the pastor was preaching. But the pastor was preaching on the reality of hell. And he said at three years old, he went forward at an altar call and he remembers it crystal clear at three years old. See, sometimes we think, ah, oh, kids are not going to get it and whatever. But look, they, they, have, they don't have all the junk in their hearts that we have. They have a, a pure approach to the Lord. And so Terah, the father of Abraham, the father of Nahor, was an idolater. And if you know uh, anything of the biblical story, you know that Abraham broke away from that. In fact, he was called by God to leave his country and his family. And he lived in a place called Ur of the Chaldees. There's a bunch of pirates there. Ur. Just kidding. Anyway, and he was called from his country and his relatives, and he was called to break away from a life of idolatry. We just had Dr. Clay Jones speak on the problem of evil, and he was telling a story about a student that he's had at Biola who came from a family that uh, has a Muslim background, and this young woman began to have dreams and visions that Jesus was preaching the gospel to her in her dreams and visions, multiple times, and ends up giving her life to the Lord. The Lord can speak to people in a number of different ways. And Abram had to make a break from the life that he knew, whether or not he was a idol worshiper himself, I don't know, but he was the father of the Jewish nation. And Joshua speaking with God's uh, authority, I took your father Abraham from beyond the river and led him through all the land of Canaan and multiplied his descendants and gave him Isaac. And Isaac means, you remember Bible students? I gave him laughter. And remember, Isaac was born to Abraham when he was 100 and his wife was 90. Woo! Now that is a miracle, <laughs> right? And they laughed, and a son of promise came. And from that son came Jacob. You have Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. This is the story of God's glory. In fact, Stephen tells this story in Acts chapter 7 when he recounts the history of Israel. And he says, Hear me, brethren and fathers, the God of glory appeared to our father Abraham when he was in Mesopotamia before he lived in Haran. And he said, depart from your country and your relatives and come into the land that I will show you. The church has been called out of the world and called into Christ. The word for church in Greek is ekklesia, and it literally means to be called out of the world and called to Christ. That's what you are if you're a Christian. You've been called out of idolatry. First Thessalonians says, you turned to the living God from serving dead idols. You came to the living God. And an idol is anything in our hearts that is above God or we try to worship alongside God. And when you come to Christ, you break away from your idols. Whether it's a physical statue in your life, a car, a relationship, a home, a job, a plan, whatever your idol may be, you break away from that and you come to the Lord. 
And the Lord continues to lay out what he did in verse 4. To Isaac I gave Jacob and Esau. They were twin brothers. Jacob was the one that God would rename into Israel. Esau I gave Mount Seir to possess it. But Jacob and his sons went down to Egypt. Remember, they sold their brother into slavery. And then the whole family ends up down in Egypt. Again, there's nothing here about the mistakes. It's all about what God did. I called, I gave. Then I sent Moses and Aaron and I plagued Egypt. This is obviously some big sweeping strokes of the history. Egypt by what I did in its midst and afterward I brought you out. I brought your fathers out of Egypt and you came to the sea and Egypt pursued your fathers with chariots and horsemen to the Red Sea. We know the story. But when they cried out to the Lord, he put darkness between you and the Egyptians and brought the sea upon them and covered them. And your own eyes saw what I did to Egypt and you lived in the wilderness for a long time. <laughs> yes. Numbers 33, 4 says, the Lord executed judgments on the gods of Egypt. I broke the slave master in your life. I set you free. And as a Christian, that's what's happened to us. We've been called out of Egypt, called to our God. This is part of our story. We were in slavery to sin and God called us out and we crossed over, if you will, and we began to walk with the Lord. This is our story and it's good Every now and then, brothers and sisters, to go back and reflect on your story. Some of you grew up in the church and you don't feel like maybe you have that radical of a conversion story. And that's okay because you've been spared a lot of junk. But others of you can mark the day. In fact, you have, you know the date of your spiritual birthday. And you know when you move from darkness to light, from the power of Satan to God. You know when that burden of sin was lifted off of your shoulders. You can mark the day. Praise God for that day. Amen. You heard the gospel. You were saved by grace through faith. That not of yourselves. It was the gift of God. It is the gift of God so that no one can boast. Recollections of grace. If you're dragging a little bit spiritually, go back and revisit what God did for you. I brought you into the land of the Amorites who lived beyond the Jordan. They fought with you and I gave them into your hand. I fought your battles. This is how I fight my battles. You took possession of their land when I destroyed them before you. Then Balak, the son of Zippor, king of Moab, arose and he fought against Israel and he sent and summoned Balaam, the son of Beor, to curse you. Balaam's the guy with the talking donkey. Can I stay with you? That's pretty much what he said. Never mind. Some of you got that. <laughs> we'll try to recover from that one really quick. <laughs> He fought against Israel, sent and summoned Balaam, the son of Beor, to curse you. But I was not willing, says God, to listen to Balaam. So he had to bless you, and I delivered you from his hand. I wonder how many times God's blocked a curse from coming into my life. I wonder how many times the enemy has wanted to just destroy me, and Jesus stopped him. I wonder how many things I don't know about that could have just been the end of me. How many times the enemy said, I want to sift him like wheat. And Jesus said, uh-uh, you ain't touching him. He belongs to me. Do you know that you're here right now by the grace of God? And that's not to mention the times that we've literally shot ourselves in the foot and put ourselves in a position where we could have fallen on our faces and the Lord turned the curse into a blessing. That story is in Numbers 22 through 24 if you want to go back and revisit it. How many times has the adversary wanted to destroy us? And then we understand that Jesus took the ultimate curse at the cross. He became cursed for us. For it says, cursed is anyone who hangs on a tree, Galatians 3, 10 through 13. Jesus Christ pays the ransom price, dies in our place, takes the curse, if you will, from uh, you know, the wrath of God and what the enemy would throw our way because he had the, the power of death, and Jesus broke that, broke the curse in our lives. You crossed over into the promises. You crossed the Jordan, which we talked about on Wednesday night. You came to Jericho. 
The citizens of Jericho fought against you. They were throwing slushies at you from the wall. How many of you remember that one? That's veggie tales. Never mind. And the Amorite and the Perizzite and the Canaanite and the Hittite and the Girgashite and the Hivite and the Jebusite. Thus I gave them into your hand. Then I sent the hornet. This is an early appearance of murder hornets right here. Just kidding. I don't know if that's true. But some believe that the hornet here is symbolic of fear. Some believe it was literally hornets. But the idea is that God fought for them. I sent the hornet before you and drove out the two kings of the Amorites, Sihon and Og, from before you, but not by your sword or your bow. Not by might, nor by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord. Put on the full armor of God that you might be able to take your stand. God's given us everything that pertains to life and godliness. This is how I fight my battles, right? Spiritually, with my Bible, with spiritual weapons for a spiritual battle. So... so, You say, what's the bigger point, Pastor Michael? Simply this. They're revisiting the history. Joshua is saying, don't forget all that God has done for you. How quick we are to forget. I gave you a land, 13, on which you had not labored and cities which you had not built and you've lived in them and you're eating of vineyards and of olive groves which you did not plant. How many of us can visit blessings that we have today and go, man, this is what I have today. Family, possession, possessions, uh, relationships, where I am spiritually. This is all gifts from God. You ever take some spiritual inventory? It'll, it'll make you a grateful person because sometimes we, we focus on all the things we don't have. If I only, if I win, if I could drive, if I could do it. It's like, wait a minute. What about being grateful for all we do have? Now, therefore, in light of this, 14, fear the Lord and serve him in sincerity and truth. That's a key. Put away the gods which your fathers served beyond the river. And remember, Joshua is a type of Jesus, so we should see this as a charge to us. Clean out the old leaven. 1 Corinthians 5.8, serve the Lord with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. Put away the false gods which your fathers served beyond the river and in Egypt and serve the Lord. There are times that we come in our Christian walk and we just have to say, man, I need to, I need to do some house cleaning. I need to sweep out the leaven regularly. That's what the Jews do every year at Passover, right? They find little bagel crumbs and they sweep them out. We got to do some house cleaning spiritually, regularly. Sweep it out. I urge you, therefore, brethren, Romans 12, 1 and 2, by the mercies of God or in view of the mercies of God, present your bodies as a living sacrifice acceptable to God, This is your spiritual service of worship. Don't be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind that you may prove what the will of God is, that which is good and acceptable and perfect. That's what's happening here in Joshua 24. It is, okay, people, I'm leaving. Another leader is going the way of all the earth. You're gonna have to take the baton. You're going to have to do it in your generation. You're going to have to stand. You're going to have to carry this baton. You're going to have to protect the gospel, uphold the word of God in a culture that ain't exactly applauding it. Have you noticed? But it may well be, who knows, we may be on the cusp of a revival. We've had a rough year, haven't we? (laughs) Come on now. I was in line at a supermarket and I was talking to the um, cashier and I noticed that the person who was bagging the groceries was listening very intensely. We're having a spiritual conversation. And I said something like this. Well, (laughs) that was Dan Varney for you. Well, (laughs) if this doesn't do it, I don't know what's going to wake people up. And And I noticed the girl, she was bagging the groceries a little bit more slowly. Hmm. 
You could feel the, you know, when you're having a conversation, but other people are listening in. I said, I don't know what it's going to take to wake us up. <laughs> said it a little louder than the normal speaking voice. <laughs> you have a captive audience in a line at a grocery store, don't you? Don't be ashamed of the gospel. Worship is the first solitary response to the reality of God. Worship is the submission of all we are to God. It is the quickening of the conscience by his holiness. It is the nourishment or shaping of the mind by his truth. It is the purifying of the imagination by his beauty. It is the opening of the heart to his love. It is the submission of the will to his purpose. All that is gathered up in adoration. Worship is the greatest expression of which we are capable. It is the goal and process of life's script. It is not just good deeds, but it is taking all my propensities under his lordship. You know who said that recently? Ravi Zacharias. He was quoting William Temple, Bishop, Bishop William Temple, but isn't that beautiful? See, a life of worship is what you were made for. Man, that seems so distant from our culture. A life of worship? Yes. That's what you were made for. To be in communion with your maker. To walk with him day by day and moment by moment. To fall in love with him. Yes. Fall in love with him. To open your Bible and have him speak truths into your heart that leap off the page. But in order to do that, you got to open your Bible. Hmm. To say, Lord, here I am, made in your image. I want to know what it means to walk with you and to walk as Jesus walked. Help me. Help me to be the man you've called me to be, the husband you've called me to be because I fail, the father you've called me to be because I mess up. If it is disagreeable in your sight, final verse, to serve the Lord, Joshua says, Choose for yourselves today. You know what we're good at? Tomorrow. I'll start that diet. Oh, I feel you. <laughs> Tomorrow. Usually it's Monday. Because I'm having an ice cream cone right now, so I got to start tomorrow. Do you remember when... Uh, Moses gave Pharaoh the option of when the frogs would go away and the frog plague. Remember that? Frogs everywhere. Frogs where you cook. Frogs where you sleep. Froggy by your pillow. You're the only one who understands me. Rivet, rivet. <laughs> Getting used to the frog. When would you like the frogs to go, Pharaoh? This time at your word they'll go away. When do you want the frogs to go? You know what Pharaoh says? Tomorrow. What? I would be saying, now! Get Froggy out of my pizza pan, now! Now, tomorrow, just one more night with the frogs. Tomorrow, tomorrow, I love you. <laughs> tomorrow. The enemy says, you can get your spiritual life in order tomorrow. Right? You get serious about your Bible tomorrow. Today. Who will you serve? Will you serve the gods beyond the river? The gods of the Amorites in whose land you are living? Well, it's your choice and you get to choose. Here's man's free will. You can choose for yourselves today whom you're going to serve and Bob Dylan put it well, you're going to serve somebody. But as for me and my house, what's your Bible say? We will serve the Lord. You've got to make that decision, brother, sister. You have to make it. You have to plant your flag. You have to say, for me, this is how I'm living. Now, here's a list of some practicals. What do we do if we have a child that's not serving the Lord? Pray. 
Try to model your faith. Look for opportunities. If you need to apologize for something, do it. You can't control it. Train up a child in the way that he or she should go, and when they get old, they won't depart from it. But that Proverbs 22.6 is also a celebration of who God has made them to be. Look, we, we dads are famous for trying to push our kids into a mold that we want for them that may not be how they're wired. So assess your child and say, look, this is how God made you. If this is what you enjoy doing, I will support you in that. I think one of the greatest things that a father can do is just be there applauding your, your kid. Be in their corner. Be their advocate. What if we were a poor example when they were growing up? Then be a good example now. And if you have to apologize for something, do it. Remember, if you had a bad example growing up, God is the father of the fatherless. We get a look, a good look at the ultimate father in the person of Jesus because the father was always working through him. We see the father's heart. Don't be afraid to tell your, your son, your grandchild, I'm proud of you. Sometimes it's easier to write it than speak it. I understand that. There are some man things where we struggle with communication at times. It makes me want to cry at, at times. <laughs> anyway. And hang in there. Because remember, your story's not over. And God has grace for you every single day. And you never know what he might do at a moment that you least expect it. He'll show you another facet of his beautiful grace. Now, this was largely, I know a lot of this was addressed to dads and, and fathers. Some of you, you know, you may be in a little different situation right now. Um, but I would just say to you, if, if everything's gone haywire in your life and you don't have a dad, or you can't change things that have happened, I would say just lean into your heavenly father because he'll give you all the grace that you need. Father, thank you for this time together. We are grateful for your living word. We're grateful the way that it addresses everyday life and decisions we need to make. We want to plant our flag afresh today as men in this congregation. As for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. Some are here and they're younger. And this is going to be for a later date. Some are uh, maybe just in a dating relationship. Some are engaged. Some are wondering, maybe they're, the plan that God has for them is singleness. But maybe they'll be a spiritual mentor uh, to a young person. We all have an ability to be a mentor or a discipler. Uh, but for most, I think, Lord, there's going to be a chance to live this kind of stuff out. And we're going to need all the grace we can get. And I pray on this Father's Day that you'll give encouragement to the dads in here where, you know, there are uh, some painful experiences in the past, whatever they may be. Help them remember that this recounting of Israel's history, there's nothing about their failures. And the Bible says in the New Covenant, you remember our sins no more. What great news that you are no longer counting our sins against us. They were nailed to the cross. You are not looking at us through our failures as often as we do. You don't. You shouldered that at the cross with your head and heart bowed. If you've not met Jesus, you never understood that he paid the ransom for you. Maybe you've been away from him for a long time and it's time for you to come home and make that declaration. I'm going to serve you, Lord, because you served me. You love me first. It's something this simple. Lord Jesus, be my God, be my Lord and Savior, my King. I turn away from the idols in my life. I put them away. I repent of my sin and I ask you to forgive me and I thank you that you took all of my failures and shame to the cross. That you're no longer looking at me through my weaknesses or in some sort of judgment, but only through the lens of love 
in the finished work of Jesus. Even when you discipline me, Lord, I know it will be from love. I want to walk with you and follow you all the days of my life. I want to lead by example for my family. I pray, Lord, that any hurts and wounds that are in this room right now where there's loss or failure, they would be so washed over by your grace that there could be a joy, a supernatural peace instead of a spirit of heaviness as we put all of those concerns on your shoulders, we cast every care to you because you love us so much. Thank you that we have such an awesome heavenly father and we celebrate you, the ultimate father today, Lord. Thank you for coming into our life. Thank you for saving us when we are lost. Thank you for being patient with prodigals. (laughs) Thank you for being so good. I pray that your living waters would flow into every life this morning. Those who have made decisions, done some business with you, uh, I pray you'd meet them right where they are. Those who are believers and they're fighting the good fight, help them to continue to fight and battle and know that in worshiping, they will find what it means to be a warrior. We pray over our nation right now, Lord. Our nation is in chaos and division. And the church has a chance to be a salve and a voice of love and truth in our culture. And we pray we'd do just that. We'd be a voice of hope in the gospel. And we thank you so much for every dad in this room. I pray that they have a wonderful day. And I pray that they would be just resting and celebrating your grace. In Jesus' name and all God's people said, amen. Would you stand for this last song?